All right, ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome you to a brand new episode of SCAR. Now, SCAR stands for Seeking Courage and Redemption with Dustin Rivenbark. We have got a great guest. We have got just a, a great episode lined up for you today. But before we get too deep in that, let me give you kind of the intent of the podcast. The why are we here, so to speak? And the truth is, guys, we all have stuff. Like we all have trials and hurts and pains and, and, and difficulties that we come against each and every day. And so we're here to work out those hardships in such a way that we can begin to unfold God's plan and purpose for our lives. Now, you may be wondering, but Dustin, why do I need to listen to SCAR? And again, the truth is we all have stuff, guys, and that stuff can begin to accumulate and it can begin to cloud our minds so much so that if we let it, it can even change the trajectory of our lives. Now, with that being said, I want to jump into a great day with a great guest, Mr. Sean Wyman. Please say hello, Sean. Hey, hello, everybody. Thank you so much, Dustin, for having me on the show, man. Hey, man, you got it, brother. And I'm so excited. Uh, Sean uh, is experienced law enforcement. Uh, he's got two books out, and he is getting his message of mental health and just becoming a strong individual in spite of your hurts and pains. Uh, I really love what, what you're doing, Sean. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely, man. So I am a 20-year law enforcement professional in Florida. I am a eight-year military veteran prior to that. I am a father to three beautiful children ages 22, 12, and 8. Nice. And I've been married to my beautiful wife, Lynn, now for 16 years. Wow. So, so you have definitely... Uh, done your time, my friend. We appreciate all of your service. Tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about law enforcement. What all were you doing in law enforcement, Sean? Sure, man. You know, honestly, I've been able to do everything I ever wanted to do in my childhood dreams. Like when you were growing up and you were thinking about, you know, being a police officer and playing all the games, the cops and robbers, you were the SWAT guy or the canine guy or the, you know, the undercover guy, whatever that was. I've done all that, man. I've been blessed. I was on our SWAT team for five years as an entry operator. I was a canine handler for five years. I've been a vice narcotics investigator. I've been a patrol officer. I've been a field training officer. Uh, I've been blessed to do some administrative stuff. I've been a trainer since I was uh, really two years on the job. I've been in high liability with firearms and defensive tactics and uh, just really, really love teaching police officers how to be better, how to improve themselves, and, uh, and, and, and how to survive this job mentally and physically. So, so you talked about living out your, your kind of your, your childhood dream, every boy's dream of being a police officer, uh, being in the military, all, all of those different things. Let's, let's back up a little bit. Can you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your, your childhood, Sean, and tell us kind of kind of how you got here, so to speak. Sure, man, because there's definitely a journey to get to the destination for sure. sure. And so my childhood started, my dad left when I was born. And then uh, about seven years after that, my mom uh, met a guy, fell in love, and decided that uh, we were going to move from Albuquerque, New Mexico to Washington, D.C. So wow. I was really excited about this guy and had painted this beautiful fairy tale of having a father figure and someone to take care of us. We were going to see all, and do all these amazing things. And so we packed all our stuff. We went to Washington, D.C. And very soon after we got there, the fairy tale became a nightmare. Oh, now, my, my, my stepfather was black and my mom was white. And that caused a lot of problems in and of itself because back then in the early 80s, that was absolutely unacceptable from both sides, from sure. both races, right? So on top of that, my stepfather was a drug dealer and a drug user because he had a lot of medical and mental problems. 
So we grew up, or I grew up, in a place where I, I lived on the outskirts of Washington, D.C. Nine-year-olds were doing drive-bys. It was the murder capital of the world at the time. My stepfather was doing drugs and selling drugs. Um, he basically totally destroyed my mom mentally, physically, uh, psychologically. I was mentally and physically abused for you know a few years while I was with him from age 7 to 10. And on top of that, Growing up in a low-income area, you know, I was like one of the only white kids in the entire neighborhood. So that had its own issues because I got in fights every single day going to school where it was where I was the minority, and you know, African Americans were the majority. You know, I got in fights like every single day. And then on top of that, my mom being white, my stepfather being black, it just didn't help. So I was getting beat up from the outside, and then I'd come home, I get beat up from the inside. And it was just a really physically, mentally, and emotionally challenging time in my childhood. And I came to a breaking point. On, John? How, how long was this a tenure? How long was this? What's that? How long was what now? How long did this take place? Um, well, from about 7 to 10. Because wow. there was a breaking point at 10. My stepfather had beat me to the point where I couldn't move for an entire week. And I remember I just got really angry and I told myself I was never going to let this happen again. And my, my stepfather carried a gun in his back left pocket. And I knew he carried the gun because he bragged about it. He showed it off to me. He told me how he would kill police officers, how he would kill drug dealers that tried to rip them off. And, that, you know, bragged about having this gun and being able to use it. So I knew we had it and I knew that was my ticket out. And so you know, after I had healed to the point where I could move again, I packed up my backpack. I got all my stuff together. I walk into the bedroom. It's about 11 o'clock at night. My mom's sleeping on the right side. My stepfather's sleeping on the left side. And I walk around to the left side of the bed. I reach down. I pull the gun out of his back left pocket where I knew it would be. I walk to the foot of the bed. I punch the gun out. I put my finger in the trigger and I start, I pointed it at his head and I start pulling the slack back on the trigger waiting for the gun to go bang. And by the grace of God, only by the grace of God, I took my finger off the trigger. I put the gun down between my mom and my stepfather. I grabbed my backpack and I ran away. And that was the third time I had ran away in my life. So I ran away. Three days later, I get caught. The police officers call my, my mom. Hey, great news. We found your son. And I'll never forget my mom saying no. He can never come back here ever, ever again. Wow. And that's when I became um, a part of the, the state of Maryland as a foster child. And I went into foster care and group homes um, for the next several years until I turned 18. And that had its own challenges in and of itself, going to different group homes, going to different foster homes, bouncing to different schools, um, you know, and, and then on top of that, never dealing with the fact that I wanted to kill my stepfather. Never. Yeah. And then feeling abandoned by my mother, I had a lot of pain and a lot of anger inside of me. And that pain yeah, and that man. anger carried through way past high school, way past the military, and even at, into the beginning of my law enforcement career before I realized that I, I needed to do something, I needed to address it. So, so going back, let's go back to, to your high school ages. Deal, dealing with that around the age of 10, uh, that snap, that as you're as you're holding that that gun there and and you leave and and that your mom says you can never come back here uh take me from that moment going into foster home what was what was your high school life like so i went from being bullied to becoming the bully okay and what i mean by that is i got tired of people hitting me and beating on me and i decided to start fighting back and then i became very aggressive and, and just wouldn't take it man i would fight anybody i wasn't afraid of anybody i didn't care whether you were a 250 pound linebacker or you were my size it didn't matter if you were you know if you were messing with me i was going to give you everything i had yeah. and so i like i said man i was very angry um and very uh I, you know coping mechanisms, right? We talk about coping mechanisms. Um, I used a lot of negative coping mechanisms. The key one was alcohol. I started drinking at 12 and I continued to drink all the way until I was about 27, 28 years old and really heavily. And I'm not talking about like just a little sip here or there. I was talking about like, you know, consistently 
drinking because it helped me to numb the pain. And then I smoked until I was, you know, from like I was around 12 to 27. That was more of a peer pressure thing. And then I got addicted to nicotine. And then, I, you know, I experimented a little bit with drugs, but drugs really wasn't my thing, man. Alcohol, alcohol was my thing. I love drinking and I felt my best. I felt my, my courage, my liquid courage, right? Whenever yeah. um, I would start drinking and that was my coping mechanism, right? And a lot of people would have said, man, what's wrong with you? But the truth was, was that's what I was using to address what happened to me. And so so a lot that, of times, that went on for a long time. A lot of times that I see some people that struggle with rage or, or struggle with addiction or struggle with whatever, um, a lot of times there's a deep-rooted factor that plays into why we're like that, whether it's genetics, whether it's generational sin, uh, whether it's something sinister like you went through, just just – it's a, uh, a, a very tragic circumstance when it happens to a child that young. And so I'm so glad that you're able now to be able to be that voice of reason and be able to speak out for people uh, who don't have a voice right now. What, what took you into the military? How did that come about, Sean? That's a great question, man. So when I graduated high school, I wanted to be a police officer. Police officers were one of the only real positive influences as I was a kid. Even when I was getting arrested, getting in trouble, um, police officers were checking up on me. They were checking my grades. They were doing all kinds of, of things to hold me accountable for me. And so I realized that that was a good thing. And I recognized that that was a way for me to make sure that I never fell into this trap again. I never wanted to be in poverty. I never wanted to live in a house with no running water or no electricity again. I didn't want to be an abuser of my own children. I didn't want to be an abuser of my future wife. And I felt like I had to find the, the, the best route that I possibly could to make sure that never happened. And so law enforcement became that direction. So I graduated high school. I went back to New Mexico because in my childhood mind, I thought if I go back to where I was happy originally, everything's going to be good again, and I'm going to get my life back. And this is going to be perfect. And that wasn't the case. I ended up learning adulting 101. I had to pay for a place that I was living in with a roommate. I worked at a, uh, a law enforcement agency as a police service aide, making like $5.25 an hour in Albuquerque at the Albuquerque Police Department as a police service aide. And then about a year or two later, I got the opportunity where I could um, apply to be a police officer. And so I did, I applied, I thought I had it in the bag. I was super excited. I'll never forget. I went through the, the workouts, the physical part, the written exams, all that. And I got, I went to the oral board and then you go to the end where you have to go in front of the round table and they tell you how you did. And they tell you if you got the, the position to go to the academy. And I went in there cocky and, and not confident. I went in there cocky thinking that I had this in the bag. And when I walked in there, they told me, they said, look, you look very immature. And unfortunately, we don't feel that you're ready for this type of position yet. We want you to stay another year, work with us as a police service aide, and let's let's run you through it again next year and see where you're at next year. And you would think, right, Dustin, I'd be like, hey, man, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'm going to prove to you that I'm worthy of being a police officer and you won't regret giving me a chance to stay on. No, man, I pointed my finger at him. And I did exactly what, exactly, I proved them right. I shook my finger at them. I told them they'd made the worst mistake in their life. I stamped out like a little baby, slammed the door, got in my car and drove off. And as I was driving home, I saw Army Recruiting Station right there on the left side. So I pull in and literally like three hours later, I'm enlisted and wow. I go into the military in September of that year. So, you know, you did what so many of us tend to do we, when, we, when we either A, don't get our way or we have a, a high expectation of how something's going to go and something doesn't meet our expectation mm -hmm. and we storm off. It's everybody else's fault. You're the, you're the dumb one, not me. And, and all right. of these different things. And so you did that and proving them right, you see, hey, I'm going into the military. And so that's where your military service began. And how long was your military time? 
my military time was eight years and eight there was years. a key factor to my military time that's where i found my father figure because that's where i found discipline that's where i found structure that's where i found purpose direction and motivation to really unleash who sean wyman really was capable of being the athlete inside of sean wyman the uh the the never quit mentality of sean wyman right that that was all that was unleashed in the military and of course i was violent and they loved that because i carried that anger with me from childhood into the military so i had no problem being aggressive i had no problem um you know going after the biggest person in in the pugil stick competition or you know whatever it was i was never afraid of the challenge i never backed down and so i went through uh ranger school which is one of the most elite schools in in the army and you know when i graduated that school right before i graduated i almost died in a training incident and i was so hard-headed i refused to quit even after i mean i could hardly see after that because the i'd gotten on a um i'd fallen in in um we're going through this this wooded area i had like a like a rucksack that was heavier than i was i was probably about 115 pounds soaking wet and that thing was probably 120. i tripped and i fell and it slammed down on the back of my neck and it pinched a nerve in my neck so they put me on this litter it's got an anchor line and a guideline and as the litter lifts me up to put me into the helicopter several feet above it I the I hear this ching and then all of a sudden I start spinning and I get faster and faster and then before you know it I'm going as fast as the helicopter rotors are going it's pitch black it's it's dark as is you know it's all get out and I, I I don't know what's going on man I'm hanging on to this thing for dear life I feel myself sliding out from underneath the straps and I'm screaming at at the top of my lungs for my mom the person i hated the most was the oh, person man. i screamed for the most in that moment and i'll never forget man it if it wasn't for an amazing helicopter pilot that knew how to deal with that um it you know it took a, it took about 15 minutes to get me into the helicopter and when they finally got me in i'll never forget they were like if you're if you can hear me squeeze my hand and i reached up and i squeezed his hand as hard as i could and then I blacked out and then I didn't wake up for several hours after that. And when I woke up, you know, all the centrifugal force and all that, you know, all the blood rushed to my head. So it blew all the blood vessels in my face, my eyes. I had blood coming out of my eyes, my ears, my nose, my mouth. And so, you know, I'd lost a lot of blood. I could, I could see maybe 40, 50%. And I had three days left to graduate, man. And I did not want to quit this school. I did not want to go back without my tab. And so I begged and I begged and I begged until finally with less, there was like two days or there was like one and a half days left. They, they bring a waiver. They make me sign the waiver. I go back out into the field and I graduate. And wow. so I ended up getting most motivated Ranger. And you know it was it was an amazing experience. Now it was terrifying then, but it yeah. was it's amazing now because it just proved that I I refused to give up, and I refused to let anything or anyone stop me from reaching what I was really capable of reaching. And it really changed my life forever from that point. Brother, it 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 really it really brings a lot of uh, memories back from uh, from from listening to stories from like David Goggins and stuff like that, mm -hmm. and uh, and and I just uh, I just want to say, man, I, I give it to you. Uh, I I pay mad respects for uh, your time in the military and law enforcement and all of that. But I gotta know this. I gotta know what did finally making it through ranger school going through all of that uh um getting these i guess awards for you know most motivated ranger all of this how did that how did that play into your psyche did that um uh how did that did that make you feel better about yourself did that make you unshakable and breakable what what was your feeling coming out of that so of course I felt invincible when I came out of that because I survived it. But let me tell you what it didn't do. It didn't stop my drinking. As a matter of fact, my drinking increased dramatically to the point where I got arrested one night for a DUI that, thank God, it got dropped down to a reckless driving. 
Um, you know, it uh, didn't stop me from smoking. I still smoked cigarettes all through the military. Um, and, and I still was very angry, you know, so it didn't change any of the dynamics from when I was a kid. All it did was just prove that I could, I could do anything that I put my mind to if I wanted it bad enough. I love that. I love that. And so any kid that, or, or young adult or, or, uh, any, anybody that may be, be listening in or hear this man, um, that, that might be in that place of just of just broken man and or or just not sure of what to do or maybe maybe it's a father who's kind of reached the end of his rope man that 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 he's just done in fact uh i heard from one today on on uh, on my social media and he may listen to this podcast what do you say to someone like that that is in a broken state man that just that just that just motivates them to keep going and keep pushing man I think what you have to say, or well, what I had to discover, and that was years after I graduated ranger school, man, that I discovered this. But you have to go back and deal with whatever it was that hurt you. You can't ignore it. You can't try to run from it. You can't try to stick it in the back of your mind and forget about it because it doesn't go away. Your subconscious brain is very powerful, and it will not allow you to just put something in the back of your mind and pretend like it never happened. I thought you could do that. Scientifically, it is impossible. I have never met anybody that could do it or that could fully accomplish it without self-destructing, right? So if you continue to carry your pain and you choose not to deal with it, it's going to make you more self-destructive. However, if you're willing to even just change it a bit, like so many people say, I can't, right, Dustin? They say, I can't deal with that. I can't address that. If you change it, you add one word with three letters and you say, I, I can't deal with that yet. Yeah. I can't address that yet. I can't forgive them yet. You'll be amazed at what that can do for you because it changes the way you think. And it helps you to realize that, okay, maybe I'm not ready in this moment, but I am willing to accept that at some point I'm going to make it happen. And by using the word yet, we accelerate ourselves to be able to do that. And, and it was, for me, that was a really powerful moment when I discovered that I had to stop saying, I can't forgive my mom. I can't forgive my stepfather. I, I can't forgive myself, right, for those things that happened. Yeah. It wasn't until I had that aha moment that helped me to understand that I had to go back. There was no choice. There is no, there is no free pass where you just get to avoid it and move on. You have to go back and deal with those things because it's part of your growth to make you who God really wants you to be. Going through the pain is how you get to the perseverance. But you you can't get there without addressing the pain, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense because my big thing is scars. In my book, um, Courage and Redemption, I talk a lot about how Joshua, I, I talk about the six key battle principles from the story of Joshua. And it's, it's Joshua carried scars. And that made him the warrior. That made him who he was, Joshua, the, the, the warrior that the Israelites needed. And, but, but he was born into slavery and bondage in Egypt. And so he, come, he, had, he had risen, uh, uh, I guess, through the ranks, through, through being chosen by God to take over and take the Israelites um, out of the wilderness into the promised land. But, but Joshua carried big scars, but yet those same scars, that pressure is what creates diamonds, you know? And, and yeah, so yeah. Uh, I think that's so huge, man. And, and you're, you're, you're laying down some, some, some really good, good nuggets. And I just want to encourage whoever's listening to this podcast right now to really hear what you're saying, Sean, and understand that in order to move forward, the only way to do that is to deal with what's holding you back. That's right. And, and, and once you can do that, I love that you added those three letters, yet. What yet stands for to me is, is hope. Yes. Yet 
is hope. When you put, I can't do it, it's final, it's over, exclamation point, bam, go home. But when you put that yet, bro, you leave that, you leave that space, you leave that dash there that says, but there's still time. That's right. You know, and and I love that. Now take me from there, man, uh, into law enforcement. All right, let's do this. So, okay, I graduate, I get to the military, um, I'm at the end of the military, and I I got married when I was about 23, and part of that was because of that near-death experience. I started having these thoughts about, man, if I died, I don't have any children, I don't have anybody to leave my legacy to, I don't have any of those things. So, of course, the next woman I met, I married, and that was a huge mistake because it was not anything like I wanted it to be, and it's not because of her necessarily. It's because of the circumstances that were behind the reason for what I did, what I did. I didn't marry her out of love. I married her out of fear for myself that if I went somewhere and I didn't come back, I had this egotistical mindset that I wanted to leave something behind, right? So my marriage was self-destructive in itself because I never dealt with the problems from my past. I was deployed you know, we were married three years. I saw her six months out of three years. We were on an international tour, so we were overseas in Italy. She was miserable. I was loving life because I'm going all over the place doing cool missions and stuff. She hated it. And then in a last-ditch effort to save our marriage, she got pregnant. And that was a moment where I had to make a decision. I had to decide, was I going to be a father or was I going to be a soldier? And my dad left when I was born. Yeah. And I swore that I would never do any of the things that my, my, my dad had done to me. Right. So it was an easy decision for me. I've got to be a father. So that drove me into law enforcement. When I couldn't become a police officer and a military person in the military, I knew that I had to go into, I had to pursue law enforcement again and so i did with much more training much more understanding and knowledge and and wisdom and maturity so now i'm 27 i get the job at the tallahassee police department but i want you to think about this if you know and especially in this climate today where we are in law enforcement right you're in your worst moment ever whatever that looks like for you and a police officer shows up and knocks on your door And that police officer um, was mentally and physically abused growing up. Uh, His mom abandoned him at the age of 10. He premeditated and attempted to murder his stepfather at the age of 10 and never dealt with that. He was an alcoholic from the age of 12 to 27. In that, matter of fact, at that moment, he's knocking on your door. He's still drinking pretty heavily. Um, He went through the military. He suffered a near-death experience. He got married. He ended up divorced. He's $150,000 in debt. He's a single father. And that is what is showing up at your front door. When you need me to be at my best and you're at your worst, that's what showed up. Wow. I want you to think about that for a second. Because that's why we can't allow ourselves to hold on to the past. Because if we hold on to the past, we carry it over into the future. And it doesn't just impact us. It impacts every single being that we come in contact with 100%. positively or negatively it impacts them and Absolutely. we triggered them just like they trigger us and if we don't understand that that leads to poor decision making saying things that we're going to regret later excessive force that could have been avoided right i mean i can go on and on with the attributes of dealing with your problems before you get into that profession right but in that time that's where i was so, so Does going, that make sense? Go, yeah, man. So, so going into that, what, what role do you think mental health plays in law enforcement, man? You know what? It is the most important and most neglected piece of our profession. What do I mean by that? It is the, we deal with people in social, emotional capacity. of our career, every single day we're dealing with somebody's social, emotional problem, whether it's mental health, 
alcoholism, mental, physical abuse, sexual abuse, domestic violence, um, you, you name it, we, we deal with it in some way, shape or form, right? Yeah. Yet we train on that less than 10% of our entire career. Meanwhile, addiction is up, suicides are up, divorces are up, and they've been up for the last 20 years since I've been in this profession, it has been the same routine over and over again. We yeah. have high divorce rates, we have high addiction rates, we have high suicide rates, some of you are going to go to jail, some of you are going to beat your wives, right? I mean, yeah. the list goes on and on and on. And I've seen it over 20 years. I've seen officers that got out of the job because they got addicted to drugs and alcohol. I've seen officers get divorced. I've seen officers commit suicide, man. And we do nothing. We do nothing to address this at the beginning of a young officer's careers. And we set them up for failure from the beginning because we don't prepare them for what's coming. So, so I went and actually did a round table one time with a group of, uh, uh, it, man, we had, we had mayor, chief of police, we had, uh, a sheriff, we had, uh, a couple of, of, uh, uh, diverse pastors, black and white. And we had this round table and we were basically, uh, this was a few weeks back. We were actually talking about, um, you, you know, a lot of the race relations and a lot of the over-policing and under-policing and all of this different stuff. And one of the police officers started tearing up and he said, listen, you don't know what we deal with on a daily basis. And he started talking about graphic uh, uh, deaths of babies, of suicides, of all of these different situations that, that they run into. And he says at the end of the day, I still have to take my daughter to soccer practice just like everybody else, but I'm That's carrying right. this. That's right. And so, and so with that, um, what, what can, what can we do, Sean? What, what is the answer? So the answer is, first of all, we have to implement this as a high liability topic, just like firearms, just like defensive tactics, just like defensive driving, Mental health needs to be a high liability topic and it needs to be just as important. And the reason why is because we kill ourselves far more than any other element we train for that could kill us today. Mm. That's a fact. We kill ourselves, we die by our own hand more than anybody else's hand. That's unacceptable, man. As a trainer of 18 years, I cannot accept that any longer. We have to start addressing the mental health issues, the trauma. We got to prepare them for the ambush before the ambush comes. Look, Dustin, in the military, we train for the ambush way before we ever get into an ambush. So when we get into the ambush, we're ready. We know what to do. We know how to survive it. In law enforcement, we don't do that, man. They get ambushed mentally, and then they try to fight their way out of it for the rest of their entire career. And when it gets so dark and so deep and so demented that they can't get out, they become self-destructive. And look, it's not just police officers, man. It's firefighters. It's EMS. It's corrections. It's dispatchers. Public safety in general is one of the most self-destructive industries on the planet. Sean, you just touched something, man. You just touched something that this hadn't even crossed my mind. This is so much bigger than just law enforcement. Yes, it is. I, li listen, I, I hadn't even thought about the dispatcher that's on that other line receiving that phone call of someone screaming uh, and, and, and in a horrific situation and you're helpless and all you have is a telephone, you know, and, and I haven't even thought about the, the, the ambulance driver that shows up on the scene of just complete chaos i haven't even thought about the, the the fireman who just shows up to help and next thing you know his life is on the line and he's got he's got kids as much as anybody else this is mm -hmm. so much bigger and and we need to really be diving in uh on on to this whole idea of mental health yes and so I, and i call it mental health fitness man i, I feel like there needs to be 
an introduction at the very beginning of every one of these professionals' careers that says, look, you are going to face trauma. There is no way around it. You are going to go to events, you are going to have experiences, and there are going to be effects. And you can't control what you get dispatched to. That is what it is, right? You're going to go yeah. to what you're called to. And it's going to be really difficult to control the experiences because a lot of those experiences are going to be with traumatized people that are kind of predicting what that, that experience is going to be like. But where you have the control is the short-term and the long-term effects on you after you go to that call. We got to teach them to understand that and to recognize that and that it doesn't come from going to a horrific call and then storing it in the back of your mind and sucking it up and driving on and just deal with it because nobody gives a damn. Nobody wants to hear your problems. No, we got to teach them that it's okay to not be okay. It's yes. okay to be a little pissed off. It's okay to be upset when that baby dies in your arm. It's okay to cry your eyes out, man, if that's what it takes because that is what the healing process is all about. We got to teach them that they have to go through a process just like anything else. We got to teach them that they're going to face post-traumatic stress injuries. And that if they don't address those injuries, they're going to lead to post-traumatic stress disorder or long-term post-traumatic stress, right? We also have to teach them that when they fall into post-traumatic stress, that they can get out, that there is a process to help them to get through that. And they don't have to lean toward alcohol. They don't have to lean towards divorce in their families. They don't have to lean towards killing themselves because we have the right resources and the right opportunities in place to help them to get through the most challenging moments that they face. Can you give me, can you give me an example of what you mean the right processes to get off uh, or, or, or to kind of get out of, out of that rather than turn into the bottle, rather than turn into the drinking. Yep. Uh, what are some of the steps? What is the process, Sean? Okay. So number one. Okay. So I'm just going to give you my experience from three days ago. I get a call um, that a baby is uh, not breathing, doesn't have a pulse and is bleeding from the nose. I get to the house. The parents shove the baby in my arms. He's lifeless. I start doing CPR. I'm getting on the radio. I'm telling them to get EMS to me. I'm, I'm doing CPR the best I can with this five-week-old infant who ends up dying in my arms. Dying right there in my arms. I get them to the ambulance. We put them in the ambulance. They're trying to get them to the hospital, and they end up. he ends up dying, right? Now, I got to deal with that. Yeah. I, I'm a father, man. I got a son and a daughter, right? I've had babies in my life. I, you know, so it's a very traumatic moment. But number one, I realize that. Number two, I recognize that I can't just go and sit it in the back of my mind. I need to start addressing it immediately. So when my wife calls and says, how are you? Instead of saying, oh, I'm fine, babe. I'm honest with my wife. I go, hey, look, I'll be honest with you. I'm having a really tough day. A baby died. What? Yeah, a baby died in my arms. Wow. And I trust in my wife that she will help me to get through that, right? She under Now she understands if I come home tonight and I need a little bit of space, why? Or if I need, if I'm very clingy to my children tonight, why? Then I call a, a friend of mine who is a behavioral health director at a local hospital and I say, hey, I need to talk to you. I had a baby die in my arms. This is within an hour of this happening because I know I don't want to sit there and think about it and not do anything. I know I've got to act immediately so this doesn't become more than just a, a post-traumatic injury. And right? this is where we get in trouble. This is where, this we, is where get we get in trouble. trouble. Yes. Because what happens is we don't say anything. The yeah. wife calls, oh, everything's good, babe. I'm yeah. okay. We go home. We have a shot. We take a round. Maybe we have a few. Maybe we have more than a few. Maybe, we just, maybe we're like, you know what? I just don't want to be around anybody. We totally disconnect. We turn the TV on and we zone out into the television. And wife like thinks you're angry there. at her. Tensions go there in your That's marriage, right. your kids, right. and all of that just stacks. That's right. So we have to teach these guys how to address this stuff. 
stuff. They got to be able to realize it. They got to be able to recognize it. They got to be able to respond to it. And they got to have a plan in place to not be re-traumatized by it. Because guess what? Tomorrow, I could go to another call and have to deal with another baby again. And I've got to be ready for that moment, right? I've got to be prepared for that moment when it happens. I've got to be ready. Because this one I may save, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. And, and, and I got to recognize that I did everything I could for that child. I went back the next day. I talked to the father. That was part of the healing process for me, was just going back and talking to the dad and checking on him and seeing if the family needed anything. I, I spent time in my Bible praying. I spent time just talking to God about it and, and, and releasing it. Instead of putting it in the back of my mind and saying I was going to deal with it later, I dealt with it immediately. Sean, and there were other things. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, buddy. I'm sorry. I, I was just going to say there's other things, right? We need to train our supervisors and our staff that, you know, when you go and you deal with something like that, you probably shouldn't be going to another call right after it. You probably should be taking a little bit of time, taking a few deep breaths, you know, hey, how are you doing? Do you need a little while? Do you need to take the rest of the day off? You know, what do you need right now? That was a pretty bad experience, right? We need someone to say, it's okay for this to suck because it sucks. I'm telling you, man, when a baby dies in your arms, it sucks. There's no other way around it. You, there is no pretty coding it. Oh, uh, you know, no, it sucks. It's a bad thing. But how do I turn a bad moment into a positive opportunity, right? I talk about it. I address it. I deal with it. And I mentally prepare myself because I know I could go right back out into another call and I have to deal with something even worse than that in the future. So, so I've got to be ready. You are preaching right now. And I want to, I, I want you, I want you to know that what you're saying is, is not just uh, law enforcement. It's just not military guys. Some people may be thinking, this Sean and be thinking, well, I don't face any of that, man. I'm good. But listen, yeah. we all we all face our own struggles. We all face our hardships in such a way that that it can add up in in the same in the same exact way. It could cause tension in our marriage. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, bills piling against me can 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 bring tension between me and my kids. You know, uh, losing my job, fights with my bosses, all of these different things, man, can add up and like bring me to my wits end. And if I do not talk about it, if I don't deal with this stuff, that's where the the anxiety creeps in. That's where the loneliness, that's where the pulling back out of yes. relationships and stepping yes. away from people, the isolation. Man, yep. and so, so what you're saying, man, this goes, this goes people wide, man. Yes, and, it does. And so, uh, I just you're you're like setting off a light bulb in my mind of 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 what our law enforcement and everybody that's attached to them and everybody that comes in contact with them, uh, it, it's just setting off a light bulb at what we're going through. And then you can take those same principles and apply them to every other facet of life. And it comes down to talk about it, man. You've got yeah. to be relational. Talk about it. Bring it to God. Now, now you, you mentioned studying your Bible and all of that. When, when, at what part of your life did that become important to you, Sean? Because that's a big deal. So I would say when I met my second wife, Lynn, Lynn brought me back to God big time, man. And, and it was in a retreat that I went to before we got married that I really heard God for the first time in my life. And I was still angry. I was still drinking. I was still having all these problems. And I'll never forget, man, I opened up the Bible and I saw this scripture and it basically said that, you know, in order for you to be forgiven, you must be willing to forgive. Mm. And I'll never forget how powerful that was. And I heard, you know, this, this voice in my head that said, I want to do so much with you, but I can't do anything with you until you go back and you deal with all of these issues from your past. You've got to let it go. 
And so from that moment, man, I cried my eyes out, man. I washed my soul with my tears. And I remember walking out of there a different human being, a different thought process, a different mindset, right? And and that's what that's why I wrote the book, the very first book I wrote, Let Go the Movement Process is from that moment because when I let go and I started the movement process, which I wouldn't understand it for like another 10 years when it was finally revealed to me. But when I recognized what the movement process was and I started to apply it in my life, I saw the power of God and how powerful it was in my life. And I wanted other people to feel and have that same opportunity. So I told my story and I, and I shared the movement process because I felt like it was something God wanted me to do. So what do you, what do you hope that readers get out of the movement process? Tell me a little bit of what, what I could expect if I sat down, what you hope that I closed that book and walked away with. I hope that no matter what you've gone through in your life that you've tried to close the door on and couldn't because you've never addressed it, that you can take the eight steps in the movement process, apply them, and be a different human when you finish that book. When you apply those eight steps consistently and do it trusting in God, believing that he is there to walk you through the fire and help you come through the storm, and when you come out the other side, you're going to be a different human, that's what I, that's what I want. Sean, where um, are, are you able to use any of this stuff in law enforcement training or every day, every day. So you are, you are using this every day. This is tried and true and trusted. Yes. And, and I wrote a second book that focused on law enforcement. Well, it, it focused on public safety in general, and it focused on the mental health fitness of us. So that is something again, that I apply every single day i tested the stuff that i put in my second book multiple times because i was not going to go out there and, and 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 put something in front of people without knowing that it was street tested and effective so it was street tested it was effective we've done training programs um one of the top trainers in law enforcement in the when i'm just in public safety in general in the world lieutenant colonel dave grossman wrote the foreword for my book and said it was one of the most important works of our lifetime that I had to execute this because it was that important. And that to me, man, was God screaming, you are on the right track. Go, go, go. And so that's what I've been trying to do ever since, man. And has it been an easy ride? No. Yeah. No, believe it or not, man, I've had a lot of difficulty getting people to listen, getting people, even though the suicides are high, we don't like to talk about it in our industry. Yeah. Even though addiction is high, we don't want to address it. We don't want to admit to it. We don't want to have those courageous conversations. And it is the most frustrating thing because I have a solution and I want to get it out there. And, and I, I just got to keep trusting in God, man. And maybe it'll be through your podcast, man. Maybe is, someone will hear it, get it, and will help us to drive this thing where it needs to go. What do you think the biggest hurdle is? What do you think the biggest obstacle holding holding it back from from really getting out there? Is it the the taboo nature? Is it just not wanting to talk about it? What is what is the biggest hurdle you think that that this whole idea of mental fitness and all of that is 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 having? So, I would say this, right? When you eat a lot and you gain weight, it takes a long time. Normally, you don't just like get heavy real fast, right? You eat yeah. and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and then you gain weight. And then when you finally decide, wow, I'm really overweight, I need to lose some weight, and you start applying, it takes time, right? It yeah. took you a long time to gain the weight. It's going to take you a long time to lose the weight healthy. I think it's the same thing, Dustin. I think we have sat so long. Um, unconsciously incompetent, meaning what we don't know or what we didn't know, we just didn't know. We really believe that firearms and defensive tactics and, de and uh, defensive driving were the keys that we needed to survival. And now, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, we are now saying, wait a minute, the mental health aspect has got to begin to become a part of the conversation some people aren't ready for that conversation, Dustin. Man, Some people aren't ready to open that Pandora's box because there's liability involved in that. 
there's opportunity for people to take advantage of that and, and manipulate the system, right? So they're worried about that. Meanwhile, people keep dying. People keep abusing alcohol. People keep getting a uh, divorce. They keep getting, um, you know, into pr uh, promiscuous situations that they can't get themselves out of. And we keep doing the same thing. And you know as well as I do, right? If we keep doing the same thing, we get the same result. In order to change the result, we've got to change what we're doing. And until we change what we're doing, we're going to continue to have these high suicide rates. And all I want to do, man, is reduce those. And I believe we have a solution that can do that in the next three to five years. So, so you've mentioned twice now mental fitness on this podcast. Can you... Can you tell me, is there a gauge? Is there, what, what tells me that I'm mentally weak or, that, or that, that I need mental fitness? Or is this something that everyone needs? T tell me more about this idea of mental fitness. Okay, so I believe that a lot of people don't even realize that they need it because they deal with trauma, like adverse childhood experiences, right? You do realize that millions of children are mentally and physically abused every single day. Their families are divorced. Parents are incarcerated. They're addicted to drugs and alcohol. They're um, sexually abused. I mean, there's like these, I mean, every single day. And then they become adults and they never deal with it. Just like I did. They never deal with these things. And then they keep kicking the can down the road, kicking the can down the road, kicking the can down the road. And then finally it goes, huh, man, I wonder what, I wonder if I would have gone back and dealt with that in the past, what I'd be like today. Right. And it's yep. too late at that point because you've waited too long. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because we, so there's this, there's different levels of confidence, of confidence, right? There's unconscious incompetence. means what you don't know, you just don't know. And then there's what's called, conscious incompetence which means you know but you don't want to do anything you'd rather somebody else deal with the problem then you have conscious confidence that's the action step that's when we start to apply we go look i don't know everything about this whole mental fitness thing but i'm willing to start applying it and seeing if i can make myself better and then of course there's what we call unconscious confidence which means we don't even think about it anymore we just naturally do it we have to come to a place where we become unconsciously competent to the mental state so that I don't have to think about it. Like I didn't have to think about whether I needed to talk to somebody. I knew because of all the training and all the research and the trauma-informed care and all the different training and, and everything that I've had in my life, I knew there was no way I was going to allow myself to bury it. No way. Because I, I knew the long-term effects would be negative and self-destructive. If we teach our officers, if we teach our firefighters, if we teach our young EMS personnel, if we teach our young dispatchers that in the beginning, they will be so far ahead of the curve that we're in right now. It, it, it's not even funny, man. It's Sean, not even funny. They will be so far ahead. It's unbelievable. You know, I, I, I just, I tell you, I, I'm just um, reminded of, of, I used to work offshore drilling rigs for 10 and a half years. And I'm reminded of when the horizon happened, when that rig blew up and, and, uh, 11 great men were lost, but so many made it off that rig. So many men, so many lives were saved because of training, because mm -hmm. of learning how to use those, uh, uh, life rafts, learning how to use those lifeboats, the, the, the drill after drill after drill. And there's so much importance placed on that needs to be placed on preparation so that whenever you come into uh, life's hardships or whatever, or, or, or so be it, whenever you come into these situations, you, 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 you act on autopilot and it just, right. and it just happens. But there's so many of us that are in that, we need to take that next step. I think you called it uh, conscious competency. I think where yes, we need to it. we need to take that step, and, and we need to recognize that we need to do something. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't come automatically yet, but but we need to be able to start taking those first steps. And that's what it. can we do as uh, an average civilian, as as somebody that's outside of all of this, maybe that doesn't. 
um, um, quite deal with the level of those things, what, what is my next step? Well, look, your next step would be no different than mine. It really wouldn't, man. You recognize, first you realize that you go through a traumatic thing or you have a traumatic situation and then you recognize, you know what? I need to deal with this because if I don't, it's going to impact me. It's going to impact my family. It's going to impact my life. And then you respond to it. How am I going to address that? Do I need to talk to somebody professional? Is this somebody, can I, can I just give this to God? You know, how strong, you know, like for me, I, there's a lot of things, man. Like when I let go, when I really let go of my past, I just gave it to God, man. I didn't talk to a therapist. I didn't talk to a psychologist. I didn't talk to anybody. I gave it to God. Now I told my wife my story, right? And I wrote my story out. That was very healing for me to write my story. I called my mom and, and I forgave my mom. I forgave my stepfather, right? I did all those things, but I didn't like go and talk to a, a, a human. I gave it to God, right? And when I did that, man, it was released. It wasn't forgotten, but it was released where I didn't have to constantly worry about whether it was just going to pop back up. And if it did pop back up, I recognized it, knew it wasn't a big deal and was able to just keep going. You know, those that's that's so huge. And I, I look forward to seeing what you do with this, Sean. And you're you're right. I, I hope it I hope it is through something as simple as as my podcast. I hope someone hears this and says, you know what? Um, let's let's see if we could take this to the next level. Let's see if we can yeah. uh, help get this out there. And that's what I want to do here is try to help you. Uh, get this message out there. So where can people go if they want to learn more about Sean Wyman? Where where can sure. we learn more about all of this topic and, and you and your books? Okay. So Amazon, you can find me. You can type my name, Sean, S-E-A-N, Wyman, W-Y-M-A-N. Uh, you can type my name into Google and you can find me on various social media platforms. We have a website for our first responders. It's gbtc911.com. And for everybody else, it's goingbeyondthecall.com. Mm. Um, the book, you can get the let go of the movement process. You can go to themovementprocess.com, and it'll take you to the link to get the book. Or you can go to gbtcbook.com. So you can either go through Amazon or you can go through the different links. Um, to get the books. And then you can also go to seanwyman.com if you want to learn more about me as a person, um, uh, my trauma-informed speaking. I do a lot of speaking on trauma-informed care and things like that for uh, different audiences outside of public safety. Man, this is this has been gold. I, you've, opened up, you've opened up my mind to so much more and the urgency and the importance that this has got to get out and it needs to get out now. Um, and and so many, there's so many people connected. And, and when you look at all that's going on in the world between law enforcement and the people and, and, and all of these different things, this is so much deeper, man. This is so much wider than just looking at the surface. And there's some, there's some things we really need uh, to, to, to work on. And, and, I want to encourage each and everybody that that has listened to really um, heed these words and really understand that we have to deal with whatever is holding us back. And you said it best. One of the best ways to do that is giving it over to God. But we have to deal with it. We have to move forward. Um, Sean, I don't I don't do this uh, a whole lot, and and I should I should pray over everybody, but. But I think this is an extremely um, important time to just take a time out. And I want to end this in, in a prayer over you and, and what you have going on and pray over uh, your mission specifically. Can we do that? Yeah, absolutely, man. I would be humbled and honored for that. Thank you. Great. So, uh, Father, I just I want to thank you for this introduction with Sean. I want to thank you for this discussion. God, I pray that you bless um, this discussion in many ways, Father, first and foremost. I hope that, that with Sean's willingness to share his story, to share these truths, to share all of this that's going on right now with mental health and all that's going on in the world, I pray that you can bring this to the forefront, that you 
can use this to glorify you, God. That you can use uh, the books, that you can use the programs, that you can use the steps, Father, to save lives around the world. That you could that you could start right here, right now, Father, and bless this. This to me is a ministry. This is a ministry that goes so far and so wide and is so needed. And Father, I pray blessings upon Sean, upon his family, and upon all that he's trying to do here, Lord. I pray for all of our law enforcement. I pray for all of our firemen. God, I pray for all of our first responders, period. God, they're, they're, they're all on the front lines for our freedom, and God, they deserve to be whole. God, show them the way. Help them with this very study right now, Lord. Open the doors for Sean. Open the doors for his family, and I look forward to what you're going to do in and through his life, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And, uh, and Sean, man, we love you, man. And, uh, I want to thank you for coming and being a, a guest on SCAR. Hey, thank you so much for the opportunity, man. It's been an awesome time. Absolutely. And if you'll hang on for just a minute, as for yeah. our listeners, I'll see you in the next couple of days. <laughs>